The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. My guest this week is Madeline Bunting, whose new book looks at the English seaside and also its sorrows. It's called Seaside, England's Love Affair. Madeline, welcome. Can I ask just what got you started on this? I mean, apart from, as it seems, a weird enthusiasm for swimming in the freezing sea. (laughs) It was a comment, actually, that my sister made about she'd done one of those long-distance walks in Yorkshire, and uh, she said she'd walked along Scarborough's seafront. And she just was saying, you know, so, so, so sad. And it instantly took me back to those childhood memories that I talk about in the book. Of, you know, on the, the primary school trip to Scarborough, it was such a magical place. I grew up about 40 miles away in the countryside. And Scarborough, I can't tell you how exotic and exciting and glamorous it was as a six-year-old to go to, to Scarborough. And it got me thinking about how, you know, that's my, my memory, of course. And it's the memory of millions and millions of other people that the seaside resort, and I'm particularly interested in these resorts rather than, you know, the whole of the coastline how they were places of such enchantment, really, for the best part of 150 years. And several of my other books have thought, and and I've spent a lot of time thinking about place and its importance to us and why we become so deeply attached to places. And this seemed to me such a sort of particular type of attachment. They're very, very distinctive places. And so I just got gripped, you know, I was kind of like, I can see exactly how one could begin to sort of mine this territory. And that territory, that enchantment, which you describe, and I, you know, I've baked into my own memories as well, we're probably pretty much of a generation. Is that something that just stops? You know, those childhoods that are of, I guess, the late 70s and early 80s will still have that, that memory of the seaside. But presumably, for millennials and Generation Z, it means something different or means nothing at all. And I think that's really what I'm sort of fascinated by, that this experience that was kind of common to the vast majority of Brits and particularly the English. I have, you know, I call this England's love affair. And, you know, obviously there's a conversation to be had with Scots and Welsh and Northern Irish as to whether it really is England's love affair. But I think it's particularly so of England's big industrial urban cities that they develop this kind of romantic relationship with their nearby coastlines. And I think it is slightly different in Wales and Scotland and Northern Ireland. And I think there's something very distinctive about its contribution to sort of English national identity. So that really fascinated me. And it also fascinated me that, as you say, it dropped off a cliff in the early 80s, you know, in the course of a decade, the growth of package holidays, which came within the reach of of a large proportion of the, the British population, brought that common experience to an end. We still visit these seaside resorts, but we visit them largely for day trips. We don't do, you know, the kind of fortnight family holiday at the seaside type thing anymore. And I think the relationship that we have with the seaside changed very abruptly in the 80s and you know for somebody again like I say who's interested in place 
that is probably one of the most dramatic shifts that it's possible to have. These kind of great places of enchantment and et cetera, et cetera, suddenly became places of that represented decline and a kind of tragedy, really. And I, I, and I think you can sort of pin that down to the years between 1975 and 1985. They became a trope of national decline from having been, you know, a place of adventure and exoticism and glamour to being declined. You know, wow, what a, what a dramatic shift. And I think that sort of speaks to a much larger set of questions, really, about England's understanding of itself. It's almost like we projected onto our coastlines our own increasing degree of uncertainty about who and what we were. Yeah, we'll maybe return to that kind of post-Morrissey period of depression because there's an awful lot of there's a huge amount of reportage in the book and you're going all around but I'm interested in the way you historicize it and you mentioned you know Wales and Scotland and you have an idea early on I think you quote the academic Alex Niven talking about our relationship with our coasts being really peculiar because of the sort of grab bag identity that we have or the relationship that England has to its its neighbours yeah, well, I found Alex and Niven's ideas very interesting because Alex Niven basically argues that because England is by far the biggest nation within a political entity of four nations, Wales, Ireland, Northern Ireland, Scotland and England, that in England in many ways had to um, suppress its identity to ensure that it could maintain the broader multinational identity of the UK or Great Britain. And he argues really that while the great era of nation building in the 18th and 19th centuries, which was evident across the continent, France, Italy, Germany, but also evident in Scotland and, and in Wales to a degree, did not happen in England that we were so busy trying to prop the whole thing up and not make it too obvious that we dominated our neighbours. And he argues, therefore, that there's a hollowness to English national identity. Well, the, the whole point about that metaphor of hollow is that actually it only has some solidity on the edge. And that seemed to me to be an interesting way to think about the coastline, that if it's a hollow national identity, perhaps some of the most kind of vivid sort of symbolic representations of, of Englishness can be found at the seaside. And indeed, you know, if you kind of trawl through the books, the novels, the films, the paintings, I think again and again, you get a sense of the sort of symbolic weight of the English coastline to the whole country, to the whole of England. And particularly the resort came to represent all sorts of characteristics that we were both ashamed of or proud of, but but saw our Englishness as very evident in these resorts. Yeah, but that sense of the sort of concentration of meaning at the edges. I mean, the resort, the idea that going to the seaside might be fun is, I mean, not a complete innovation, but it's not it's not what it was for most of our history, is it? Yeah, well, you know, that that's what I found absolutely kind of fascinating is that, you know, my starting point for the book, as I've mentioned, was Scarborough and my own childhood kind of experiences of it. But actually, the history of it, of all of this fascination that we have with the, with the seaside, 
sort of starts in in Scarborough. And I, I know people will say, well, you're born in Yorkshire, so you're going to claim it was you, Scarborough was first. And actually, you know, what about Margate and what about Brighton? So let's, you know, we can have that kind of rivalrous argument, as I'm sure Margate and Brighton would be happy to. But 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 I, I do think that there's quite a lot of historical evidence that it was the late 18th, hang on, I better get this right. It was the 17th century when they started to take the waters in Scarborough. Okay, sea uh, bathing became a thing. And there was this extraordinary kind of idea, which is, okay, let's get in the water, not just drink the water from a, a, a spring in the cliffs, actually, but let's walk across this sandy beach and get in the water. And the book that was, I think, just brilliant at laying this out and thinking about this is, is a book by a French social historian, Alan Corbin, The Lure of the Sea, because what he really is able to help take you through is how our love of the sea develops. And, you know, to us, it just seems like so blindingly obvious that it's lovely to walk across a beach and, and paddle in the in the waves, even if you don't want to go in, Sam. Okay, I get that. That's a bit of a kind of taking it further. But, you know, the idea of enjoying the horizon of the sea, we think that's obvious. In fact, it wasn't at all. It was an 18th century invention. Because if you look back through, you know, thousands of years of cultural history, there's a deep, deep anxiety about the sea. It's dangerous. Most people couldn't swim. And sailing was extremely dangerous. And fishing was a, an extremely dangerous activity, which was largely done by people who were too poor to do anything else. So the, the coastline was to be avoided. It was a workplace. It was where people chopped up the fish on the beach. You know, it was smelly. And, the, you know, there are times when I've traveled around the world where that's still the case. You know, it's not white sands on the edge of a beautiful blue sea. The beach is actually a workplace and it's full of rubbish. And it often is where the homeless end up living in shacks and shanty towns because it is vulnerable to storms and floods and tidal surges. And, you know, some of this is captured still in Dickens, that the idea of people living on the edge, it, it crops up in Great Expectations and others of his novels. It's where the homeless could end up. So so therefore, the, the, the edge was geologically, I mean, it was dangerous because it was vulnerable to flooding. And most of the, a large part of the eastern coast of England is very vulnerable to flooding and erosion, as I discuss in the book. So the idea that you were going to build towns on this coastline and that you were going to build railway lines to reach them, and then you were going to encourage everybody not just to look at the sea, but to get into it with all of the anxiety around bodies and, and the propriety and you know the sort of sexual tensions of taking your clothes off. All of this was a series of very kind of startling innovations in the course of the 18th century, which by the early 19th century, the 1800s, had become hugely fashionable. And Brighton and Margate, I agree, had taken over from Scarborough by that point. You know, they were within much closer reach of London. But the idea of taking the waters had become a very, very popular activity. And, you know, it's the start of our great love affair. People love the sea. And the person who satirises this absolutely beautifully is Jane Austen in her unfinished last novel, Sanderton, where Jane Austen is her most wicked. I mean, quite a lot of the time you always feel Jane Austen is trying to sort of be polite. <laughs> you know, she's trying to sort of... Very arch. Yeah, very arch. Whereas Sanderton, she was clearly thinking, 
what the hell, I'm going to go for it. And um, she just is very, very funny about how people are delighted with sticking their houses on top of cliffs and the wind and the rain and enjoying all the romantic elements. It's part of that romantic appreciation of the elements rather than hiding from the elements. If you look at very old housing along the coastline, it's hunkered down well away from the shore. And it often is not facing the sea because it doesn't want the prevailing winds blasting through the front door. And think of what the difference is with Nash's terraces in Brighton, where they are precisely about facing the sea, facing out to that big horizon. Now, I mean, you mentioned Austen. She's maybe our greatest literary anatomist of class. Was the the sort of class tension that we now see in our discussion of seaside towns and in the way that seaside towns are kind of grouped into sort of hierarchies, was that there from the beginning? Yeah, I think it was. I mean, one of the things that you had to do if you were going to create a resort was you had to tidy it up. So you had to clear the homeless and the fishing well away from where people were going to sort of, you know, be sitting about on the beach and swimming. So what happened in the town of Bright Helmstone, which is what Brighton was originally, was that they literally had to sort of move the fishermen away. And they did the same in Ramsgate. So there was a process of, uh, you know, cleansing, getting rid of the sort of poverty of the coastline, tidying things up. There's always been a huge emphasis on tidiness at the coastline. And, you know, commentators throughout the 19th century were talking about, you know, whether the place was tidy or not. It's something about this liminal zone where land meets water, where which is very hard to keep tidy because, you know, waves throw rocks around, it, things rust and rot and the wind causes havoc. And, but actually, the sort of probably the defining characteristic of the 19th century and 20th century resort was we must keep it tidy. You know, the flower beds have got to be immaculate and we've got to paint the railings freshly every, every year. And to this day, Blackpool's great, great struggle is, you know, how to keep the litter off, the, you know, how to clear it off the streets in time. So, that, so I'm, I'm sort of fascinated by that kind of argument about tidiness but that, that's a bit of a digression and I've taken I've gone away from the question you asked me sorry Sam what was that no it was just to do with the kind of the sort of way it's freighted with a series of kind of class meanings I mean you know you talk about Austin and about this fashionable going to take the waters but at the same time if I'm reading your book rightly you say a lot of the you know the driver of this development was that you had you know the industrial revolution happening more and more working class people being crammed into towns which were miasmic and horrible and that it became a place where you could go to to get away from that as a you know working class urbanite. So you're absolutely right that this sort of early battle around class, which I've just described, was then followed by probably what was a very concerted effort throughout the whole development of, of kind of coastal resorts was, you know, who was your market going to be? Which class were you going to appeal to and how to maintain that identity? And perhaps the place where it is most acute is on the Essex coast where Frinton is just a few miles north of Clacton. And the two towns could not be more different and have invested quite considerable efforts in ensuring that. So Frinton was developed as a middle class, very middle class resort. Its streets are called things like, you know, Oxford Road and Cambridge Road and leafy avenues. And it was set up, the, the property developers who set up Frinton had all sorts of meticulous regulations in place about no commercial undertakings of any kind along the seafront, no no cafes, no, no circuses, nothing like that. And they were trying to make sure that they 
kept that middle class identity to the point where the connecting railway line between Frinton and Clacton had some sort of gate on it, which was only removed relatively recently. But the, the same sort of battle was going on in, a, in a, a big working class resort like Blackpool, where there was constant anxiety about respectability, because as the working class visitors arrived, the, the appetite for entertainment meant that they attracted the sort of fairs and circus entertainment that was prevalent at the time. And there's there's one wonderful description of, you know, deep anxiety about the kinds of attractions that were pitching up on the beach in Blackpool. Sort of freakish, you know, a woman who was unbelievably skinny, another woman who was incredibly fat. You know, it was fairground type, rather ghoulish types of entertainment. And, you know, the sort of city fathers of Blackpool were like, well, how do we maintain the tone? We're going to... We can't lose our respectability. In Blackpool, what they did, it it, it was sort of zoned. So you had the middle class areas north of the pier and the working class areas south of the pier. And so if you go around the English coastline, you can sort of really, in some ways, read a history of class. You know, which class was predominantly using the resort? How did the resort zone to keep the classes and their tastes and habits separate? And then the kind of plethora of, of regulations. At one point, Blackpool ballroom they said you know no spitting and they tried to sort of maintain kind of middle class habits about how how the ballroom and the wonderful Blackpool Tower and all of its incredible attractions you know the menagerie the coffee rooms that the the restaurants the ballrooms they should all be used so there was a constant struggle to assert middle class habits and this was part of a a movement in the 19th century that, that the urban working classes, in some sense, quote unquote, needed to be civilized. And that meant, you know, teaching them how to appreciate parks, how to behave on pro- seaside promenades. And it was all part of, you know, a sort of middle class project to sort of civilize the masses. It didn't work, needless to say. You've got, you've got a lovely anecdote speaking of Frinton about your, your grandmother, Bridie was a dedicated Frinton-goer and, and a bit on the snobbish side, as you describe her. Tell me about Bridie and her story. Yeah, well, poor old Bridie, you know, life didn't work out very easy for her. She lost her husband young and she in her 50s and she didn't have an income. And, her, you know, I, th- I think there's a sort of rather poignant story about a little girl who grew up in very precarious financial circumstances herself, but had thought she'd managed to secure stability she had Irish background, and it was a real story about uh, social aspiration. And in fact, you know, the last part of her life was again very financially precarious. And so Frinton was her annual holiday, and she went alone. That's what I think was really poignant. As I sort of sat in Frinton, visited Frinton for the first time in my life, having always seen the postcards that used to arrive in our family home from her holiday, and, and looking, I remember looking at these postcards with their pictures of neat little flower beds bewildered I, you know growing up in north yorkshire I, I couldn't understand what kind of seaside this was or why you would want to visit it it didn't map onto anything i'd ever experienced but i i kind of visiting frinton i couldn't help thinking of her and thinking you know what was it like to spend two weeks on your own at the seaside in your early 60s and uh yeah i felt it felt sort of quite sad and, and she was a great golfer she loved golfing and there is a fantastic golf course right next door and you know did she, that was the one thing that she'd seen. You know, she won various cups at different points in her life. Yeah. One of the things also striking in the book 
is in their heyday, I guess, in the sort of early to mid 19th century, you know, the extraordinary grandeur of these places. I mean, you describe the Grand Hotel in Scarborough as being this, I mean, it's kind of a Napoleonic kind of building, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, just just Sam, it, I would say the heyday was roughly sort of eighteen nineties through to sort of nineteen fifties. So it's sure. it's the a bit later than that, sorry. Yeah, another century later. And yes, you're absolutely right that the ambition that was invested in these places was absolutely extraordinary. The Grand Hotel in Scarborough was the biggest hotel in Europe, and the construction was built around four wings which represented the four seasons the floors i think it's something like 12 floors for you know so it was all done based around time so each floor represented a month and then each tower was topped with turrets and something like 365 rooms so it sits there now in the center of scarborough and it's so dominant because it's so vast and it's so evocative, really, about a whole sort of series of things which we have forgotten, you know, we tend to, to forget about because it's it represents an astonishing wealth of Yorkshire. This was an era when Yorkshire was one of the richest places in the world and the industrial wealth of Yorkshire loved to kind of come and relax in Scarborough. And so they needed a really grand, big hotel to do that with. So visiting these other resorts that have sort of comparable history of ambition. I mean, Blackpool, of all the places, all the resorts I visited, you know, probably the most astonishing is Blackpool Tower and the the set of buildings around it. I mean, that was done with such elaborate Baroque decoration. And the idea was that, you know, you would be able to offer the mill worker a taste of a totally different way of life, that she would be dancing or he would be dancing in a ballroom that had more in common with Vienna than it did with anything of their home life. So th- this was a you know the experience economy. That's how we would describe it now. But it 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 was it must be utterly transporting and you know, just completely breathtaking. And to go up the Blackpool Tower, which was modelled on the Eiffel Tower, and the Eiffel Tower, of course, is one of the most famous iconic buildings in the world. Blackpool Tower is famous, but you kind of think actually it, it doesn't have quite the fame of the Eiffel Tower. Whereas perhaps it should, even now, you you can see the glamour, the beautiful tiling, the detailing of the brickwork. It's quite an extraordinary masterpiece. And so, you know, that tradition of architectural innovation and innovation in terms of entertainment, how you really kind of, it's the founding of a kind of consumer society. It was on the coasts that this really first began to take shape, that you would offer people an absolutely life-changing experience out of out of anything outside their normal daily life. And the furniture that we associate with the seaside, I mean, the literal furniture in the form of deck chairs and so forth, but things like piers, things like donkey rides and punch and judy shows and fish and chips and kiss me quick hats and all that stuff that's so iconically associated with the seaside. When did that all arrive and how did it come to kind of form this sort of odd panoply of of things that were seaside things yeah it's it all comes from different places at different times what's interesting is how it's sort of all spread you know every resort has elements of that so the idea of a distinct architecture as a sort of seaside promenade with its wrought iron you can see that in new brighton on merseyside brighton seafront or you know famously in margate it's a it's a similar sort of wrought iron which the victorians developed 
And the idea that you needed to offer people shelter from the English rain so they could run off the beach into the shelter. But, you know, you've got me, Sam. I don't know where the Kiss Me Quick hat started. I don't know. I, I That's a bit of research I should have done, haven't you? You spotted a gap. <laughs> well, it's a good addendum for the paperback edition. <laughs> but actually, it does lead on to this question of the association of the seaside with sex and naughtiness. I mean, it goes right back. You drop a fascinating mention, for example, in the early 19th century of people called pyjamas, noted for not wearing any when they went swimming. You know, where, where did all this come from? And who were these pyjamas? I'm intrigued to hear more about them. Yeah, the pyjamas sound really interesting, particularly, you know, somebody who, who likes cold water swimming. This was a, a Lancashire practice where people would throw themselves. I mean, I'm not sure they would be swimming. Uh, maybe I didn't write that, use the, quite the correct word, because they, it was basically splashing around in the water, but they would come maybe farm workers or nearby mills. I mean, this is before the railways. So in terms of access to the sea, not many people did have access to the sea. And it was a sort of a quite sort of riotous event, which involved quite a lot of alcohol and it was sort of summer activity. And those pajamas are really the kind of forebears of, of a sort of tradition of excess and liberation that the seaside represents. It's a place you literally kind of throw the kind of proprieties aside and something more liberating is released. So that association of kind of liberation and the seaside, you can see sort of hints of it at different points in, in that sort of 18th, 19th century, the, the early years of the resorts. But it, it wasn't necessarily explicit. I mean, the early sea bathing was a pretty brutal, unpleasant experience Men may have either swam or thrown themselves around in the water, but women, it was much more like waterboarding. They were being held down by assistance as a cure for things like hysteria. And the emphasis was on the, the therapeutic properties rather than the sensual experience. And so it's quite interesting how, you know, various commentators talk about the beach becoming a therapeutic environment. So the fact that bodies were being revealed, even if it was just ankles or, you know, there were great efforts to try and conceal bodies. You know, there were these bathing carriages that drove women right down to the water's edge. So they literally only visible for a few moments. But it was kind of beginning to give way, even in the kind of early 19th century. I think in the book, I mentioned how men would bring opera glasses to, to try and spot the women because the beaches at that stage were segregated. Women bathed in one place and men in another. But both used to bring telescopes and opera glasses to watch each other. <laughs> and there was, you know, for Victorian society, there was some quite shocking nudity evident at some occasions. So you have this effort to maintain respectability and then how it began to sort of, from the start, be subverted. So you Brighton became associated with diff, you know, different forms of sexual adventure of one kind or another, whether that was prostitution or homosexuality from the 19th, you know, quite early in the 19th century. And it was something about the, what happens to holidaymakers that you can set your everyday home identity aside and become something different. And you, you know, you can work out how to do that. You know, do you wear different clothes? Do you, do you behave in a different way? And uh, there's a wonderful cartoon by Punch, which talks about an aristocrat walking down the pier in Brighton to be greeted by a man in very smart clothing and to realise it's his tailor. You know, how, how could these two men be greeting each other as equals? He's horrified. You know, those, those ideas of social class could actually be set aside at the seaside. And that becomes a repeated trope in various films. One of the most wonderful 
films is Hindle Wakes, which was a play and then has been made was made into no less than four film versions. And it's about how a mill worker, a female mill worker, falls in love with the mill owner's son in Blackpool Ballroom, and they decide to go away for a weekend together. So it's a the play is about 1912, but it's about her deciding she wants a, a weekend away with him, and then she does not want to marry him. So the idea of sexual adventure was already evident in the early 1900s. And as that sort of sensual experience of the seaside, the idea of the sun becoming something that you enjoyed, which was not there at the beginning, but but the idea that it was it was about the senses at the seaside. And of course, that meant the sexual senses as well. And it meant appetite and excess and exuberance and lots of alcohol. Yeah. Now, you mentioned cartoons as well in, in the context. Extraordinary story of McGill, you know, the seaside postcard man. And a slightly tragic one of no good deed going unpunished, isn't it? Yeah. It's a really sad story, isn't it? So here he is. This this is the man that's responsible for millions of postcards. He printed thousands of designs with a very gentle, what to us would now seem sweet sense of humour, you know, kind of sort of silly, really, a sort of silly, charming sense of humour. And they're hugely popular, of course. You know, the vintage versions now go for thousands of pounds and there's all sorts of reproductions of various kinds. And he was a very respectable man who kept his kind of occupation quite discreet, private, and raised his family. And in the 1950s, in a sort of vague echo of sort of McCarthy-type American persecution, really, the sort of respectability quest of seaside resorts in the 1950s led them to pounce on McGill. And Cleethorpes, a couple of others, I think Eastbourne, a couple of other resorts decided, you know, he was pernicious and and, uh, lowering the tone of the the resort and had to be stamped out. And they prosecuted him and it went to trial and he he was convicted and fined. And uh, he ended up pretty much penniless because he'd lost copyright to his printing anyway. And thousands, millions of postcards had to be destroyed. It was a kind of absurd a sort of show trial, really, in the 19, late 1950s. And after that led to reform of the, the various bits of legislation around public obscenity, because, of, you know, people like Orwell, George Orwell was a great fan of these postcards, and wrote an essay in, fa- in, in praising them, and likening them really to, you know, Shakespeare's sense of humour, there's a sort of ribald, fun loving kind of dimension to them. And yeah, it was felt that these kind of local authorities obsessed with respectability had really overstepped the mark. But times were changing, weren't they? That was the the final call of the 1950s, respectability. And the 60s swept all that away. And not long after the whole thing was to be set away, we we have to talk about the decline. And when did it start? I mean, I was thinking the Stelios of EasyJet was the great villain here, but it was before that, I think, wasn't it? And you talk about the first person painting the seaside as a scene of decline, as a place of a sort of balked imperial nostalgia, is John Osborne. Yes, yes. It's interesting how many playwrights of the mid-20th century put plays in the seaside because they had spent so much time travelling around seaside theatres doing repertoire. So Harold Pinter, you know, wrote a play about his experiences in, I think it was Hastings, but he, he went to um, Bognor to do the writing you know they they had a very in the 1950s they had a very intimate experience of the seaside and i think there's it's quite a sort of complicated story that seaside resorts 
always had an undertow of poverty. That if you go back to the you know, Edwardian times, people were already talking about the, the concern about aspects of poverty in Blackpool. It's, a, it's always been a low wage economy which attracts migrants looking for jobs. And it's always been quite a small family, uh, dominated by quite small family run businesses. If you look at the profile of sort of hotels and places like Blackpool to this day, there's lots of small family run hotels and the wages are probably not high. You know, the profit margins have always been quite slim. They talked about, I think it's something like a quarter of the Blackpool population in the Edwardian times during the winter was dependent on effectively food banks, um, what the equivalent would have been. So so there's a fr- there was always a kind of fragility. Places like Bra- Brighton, clearly, as Graham Greene described so vividly in the 1930s, had very poor neighbourhoods where there was elements of, of crime and quite evident sort of squalor of various kinds. What I think, though, happened is that fragile economy collapsed, as we described earlier in the, in the podcast, in that very abrupt way between the mid-70s. The first package holiday flight took off from Manchester in 1974. And boy, did that industry grow fast. You know, what, what had happened is this is kind of, again, we, we think loving the sun is obvious. You know, of course, everyone loves sunshine. They didn't. Up until the 1930s, People went on holiday for fresh air. That was the one of the big things. Or they went for, for this the sort of therapeutic experience of the water. But the idea that you wanted to sit in the sun, let alone lie in the sun, was an invention of the 1930s. And um, the middle classes began to visit the south of France. And through that, that obviously was kind of interrupted by the Second World War. But as the middle classes began to own more cars in the 60s, you know, they were going to France. So so there's the beginning of the abandonment of the English seaside resort. You could see the roots back in the 60s as the middle classes began to abandon them. And they abandoned them first. And then by the 70s, everybody wanted the sun. It was the south of Spain. And the vagaries of the English weather were regarded as just too much of an obstacle. And that model of a, f- a family fortnight's holiday, which was the essential prop of the economy of these seaside resorts, once that fell away, they were really, really stuck. So Blackpool now still gets 13 million visitors a year. It's a huge attraction in northern England. And so many people say, well, you know, it's got so many visitors, it can't be that badly off. But they're not staying any nights or enough nights, and they're not spending enough money. And so Blackpool economy has been struggling now for s- several decades. And you've got some extraordinary statistics as you go around the coast on the, on the sort of levels of poverty and transience in the seaside resort. But one of the sort of really striking things in what you describe is the way that these are in tiny pockets. It's almost like you have to zoom really close in on the map to find this extraordinarily deprived area quite next door to somewhere that's sort of doing not so bad. Why is that? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point to pick out. And it's often to do with housing structures. So if you have had a street of what were family run hotels, and one by one, they've all closed down. And then they're, you know, they've got like 10 bedrooms or eight bedrooms. These relatively large properties have found it very, very hard to find buyers. What then happened was landlords thought buy the hotel up, turn them into bedsits and rent them out very cheaply. And that model has become really 
evident in a lot of seaside resorts which are within reach of cities where property prices are rising dramatically. So Blackpool attracts those that are finding it hard to find somewhere to live in Manchester, for example, or Preston. They get on the train and they can get a bed sit. They can arrive in Blackpool and get a bed sit for £400 a a month or £500 a month. And the bed sit is tiny and it's not really appropriate. And it's that constant influx of people with often very troubled lives. There's been a lot of instability in their lives, issues with addiction. Perhaps they're ex-convicts, they've just left prison, they're fleeing domestic violence. Of the 8,000 people that arrive in Blackpool every year to to move into Blackpool, 5,000 of them are on housing benefit. And uh, that figure in its own just tells a whole story about how the local authority is struggling constantly with this influx of people who need support and need help to get themselves back on their feet. And Clacton is similar. So Clacton is is playing the same role for London and those areas of Essex, which are very prosperous, where renting a flat becomes so expensive that people think, well, I'll just get on the train and I'll go back to Clacton. I remember having a lovely holiday there when I was a kid. I I can start life again in Clacton. So the poorest area of the whole of the country is East Clacton. I'm just trying to remember if it's East Clacton or West Clacton, actually. But it's this area called Jaywick. And this kind of poverty is what I would call as kind of micro pockets. It's literally, you know, this street and not that street type thing. And it, it's evident in pretty much all resorts. There's it, a real kind of zonal, you know, it's kind of like pockets of this poverty. And because it's so it's often so small, just a street or two streets or three streets, it drops out of the data. When you do averages, for example, about income levels or life expectancy, across a town like, say, Brighton, you really lose that kind of granular data because Brighton is a prosperous, Brighton and Hove are extremely prosperous. It's, it's the sort of poster boy or girl for, you know, seaside regeneration. They've become a major town, a city, in fact. It's a city which has been incredibly successful, higher education and, and uh, creative industries, IT, everything. But they still have that legacy of low-paid, hospitality which creates a a sort of underclass and it's still evident in pockets of Brighton but if you do a a city-wide averages you don't find you you know you think oh well Brighton's doing fine it's not a problem and that's true of many other seaside towns so you know various people have looked at this including the chief medical officer Chris Whitty they all say the same thing. The House of Lords report on seaside towns, we need better data. We need more granular data, which identifies the depth of the poverty in these pockets, because it's probably, in fact, they would say it is the worst poverty in the country. It's really acute. Is that granularity the whole story as to why we are, as political priorities, you know, we're good at focusing on inner cities, but we're bad at focusing on the seaside? Is it just that that the data is so hard to come by? Or is there something else about uh, attitudes towards the seaside? We've now nostalgia for how those resorts ought to look that's pushing them down the political priority list. I think that's a really good question, Sam. And, you know, having spent, I think there's just so many different contributing factors to it. Inner cities, well, the middle classes didn't abandon them. 
So, you know, Camden, which has, you know, has a lot of poverty, but it also has an immense amount of wealth. And Hackney has been gentrified. So these inner city neighbourhoods, which caused lots of concern, Brixton being another in the kind of early 80s, have been able to attract investment in a way that the seaside towns have not. And it's partly the way in which the British economy has become more and more centralised around London. You know, the great engine of economic growth of the, the city of London means that there's a huge pull to London of talent and energy and investment. And the, the country, I mean, the UK is probably the most centralised country in Europe or, or close to. And this dogs so much of our politics and our economics. We've now been through all sorts of iterations about how do we reduce regional inequality. And levelling up is the latest one. And there is a tense to think about how do we level up between the North and the South. And that is the dominant paradigm at the moment in politics. It's kind of thinking of inequality in terms of North-South the thing about the seaside is that that model doesn't work. It's not a north-south split. You know, Hastings and Blackpool have masses in common. Uh, Margate, despite all of its regeneration around the turn of contemporary, still has that kind of micro pocket of poverty that means it can sit down and talk to Southend, Blackpool, Scarborough, Skegness, and they're all having the same conversation. So there's something here about, I think, how... England is a really quite a small country, and yet we've never really thought in a way that is about spreading economic opportunity right across to the edge. We've been focused on centres, urban centres, and most regional economic policy is still focused around urban centres. So the levelling up agenda is very preoccupied with iterations of the Northern Powerhouse and the kind of Birmingham, Manchester, Leeds conurbations and how do we drive growth in those areas and you know the seaside just keeps on dropping away it 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 can't it struggles to compete it it is on the edge and you know why why build a a good railway link to a coastal edge when you can do that but you know you haven't done managed yet to completely do that between major cities like leeds and manchester i i do think there's been a lack of investment in the infrastructure and digital connectivity on the coastlines is very variable. And that that is a major drag on, I mean, you know, post-COVID, lots of people are thinking, well, London's properties, prices are insane, let's move out. And you get lots of down from Londoners along that Kent coast, Margate, Ramsgate, fantastic quality of life, what beautiful places to live. But they can only do that with digital connectivity. You know, that is the single biggest factor to allowing that sort of new pattern of working predominantly from home. But that could bring about a revival of these seaside towns. People thinking, okay, I've had enough of being crammed into a very crowd, increasingly overcrowded and overpriced city of London. But your sense seems to be, if I'm reading you rightly, that the colonisation of some of these spaces by down from London's doesn't necessarily lift the overall economy of the place as much as might be hoped. That there are these sort of different models of how you <laughs> revive these towns. Yeah. Well, that, that I think is a very kind of uncomfortable, I mean, I, I think many of the down from Londoners 
the DFLs, as they're called in Kent, arrive with the very best of intentions, you know, very, very committed to getting involved in the community and, and working on projects to sort of, you know, help revive the town in various ways. And so it's it's quite poignant that in some ways their presence adds to the inequality. And it's partly the kind of the level of need. It What opens up is the gap between the two. The DFL are kind of doing up the rather beautiful sort of Victorian housing, whereas, you know, a couple of streets away, it's people struggling to kind of deal with addiction and a host of sort of troubled lives. And they're sort of cheek by jowl. I mean, the one researcher I talked to who'd done a lot of work in Margate, literally was interviewing one homeowner about Farrow and Ball paint colours, and the next door house was a crack den. I think that there's an issue here about local authority resources and social services departments being overloaded in some of these towns. They just can't cope with the volume of need that's arriving. There's something about the way that the, the, the prosperous cities are exporting their, I don't want to say problems, but those are their residents who've got troubled lives. They're exporting them to the seaside. There's no extra resources at the seaside to cope with these people arriving. And, you know, again and again, the story I've heard from all around the country is deeply well-intentioned people running projects of various kinds to help with homelessness, drug addiction, alcoholism, and just the statutory services just cannot cope. I do think that the hollowing out of local authority over the last 13 years, you know, under austerity, the chief executive Torbay Council just said, you know, I've lost 200 million from my budget. There's just so many things I can no longer do. It's a struggle just to sort of cover the statutory requirements, let alone making sure the flower beds are tidy. And that's a similar story in South Shields that I heard where they're thinking, actually, they won't even be able to meet their statutory requirements around care for, for the elderly, around social care, because there's so much pressure on their budgets. So there was a real kind of cry of pain, if you like, from all corners of the country around how seasides are sort of struggling to cope both with a lot of social need and also kind of environments that are quite hard to keep looking nice. You know, the, the, the sea every year will do quite a lot of damage. And that's what the visitors notice. Well, I think you say somewhere that Jaywick, in order to prevent itself being swallowed entirely by the sea, had to build an enormous wall that meant you couldn't see the sea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's true at Canby Island as well. Do you think that in a sense, we're so bound up and we're so motively connected to the idea of these places as resorts, as places to go and walk and swim and eat fish and chips and listen to the cries of seagulls, that actually in order to survive and regenerate, they're going to have to abandon that as a business model that belongs to 60, 70 years ago? No, I think, well, another killer question, Sam, which you know, the brightest minds, I think, in various local seaside authorities are trying to work out. Is their future really about a tourist venue or do they need to think about diversification and find other forms of employment and work? And I think two examples, Scarborough and Torbay, what they were very keen to emphasise to me is they were diversifying, that the future of you know hospitality and tourism is always a low-wage economy by definition. And the other great sector which often is evident at seaside resorts is the care sector and that again is another low wage sector so you've got 
a local employment market dominated by hospitality and care. And when you have that, you have low pay. And the consequences of low pay is you have a fragile economy because people can't afford to spend much money and it has knock-on effect. So good quality jobs is probably what most local authorities are really desperate for. But, you know, surely it's possible to have both a lovely place for people to visit and good quality jobs. I mean, that, of course, is what Brighton has managed. Brighton and Hove have managed to do. It's what Bournemouth managed to do. It's just that both those cities have gone into higher education and they have a proximity to London, which has really helped them. South End has achieved something of that for similar reasons. That's much harder to do in Minehead. Minehead is so hard to get to. And what is Minehead's future? You know, one of the oldest populations in the country, the, the demographic of Minehead, or Skegness. These are towns that because of their geographical position face a huge challenge. And I do think that we, we've sort of largely left these towns to try and work out their own future. It's not like the, 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 the country as a whole thinks, okay, well, how does everybody, all the boats rise together, as it were, that we've, we've sort of left it to people on the edge to, to work their, out their own future. And I don't think that's, that's going to work. Well, that's a, a gloomy note to end on, but there are little shoots of hope. We do still like to be beside the seaside. Madeline Bunting, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you, Sam. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, then why not come along to our Coffee House Live Coronation Special event on May the 10th? Fraser Nelson, Katie Bulls, and Camilla Tomney, Associate Editor of The Telegraph, will be discussing the coronation of King Charles III and what it means for the United Kingdom. The event's from 7pm at the Emmanuel Centre in London, and you can book tickets at spectator.co.uk forward slash coronation.